So I'm going to read from um, uh, 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 Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. It's page 1052, if you want to follow in the chapel Bibles. 1052. Um, we're, in this, we're in Lent, as some of you will have noticed. And uh, over the Sundays of Lent, we're just sort of reflecting on, just kind of, because Lent is sort of a season for self-examination. It's, it's a season for thinking about ourselves, thinking about our standing before God and how we relate to God. And so each of the Sundays through, through Lent, apart from Mother's Day, when we'll have something a bit more cheery, um, but we, we, it's, it's kind of, uh, hopefully, because Joe's preaching, I'm leaving that with her. So, um, but it's, it's a season for just examining ourselves. That's what Lent is about. We're kind of preparing ourselves to celebrate the great festival of Easter, uh, which reminds me to remind you that on Easter Sunday, we're having at least one baptism. So Dee is going to be baptised on Easter Sunday, which is wonderful. If anyone else is thinking about, actually, I would... I would like to be baptised, then do have a word with me. I was, I was baptised when I was a baby. My father, who was a vicar, baptised me when I was a baby. And uh, obviously I had no memory of it. I was baptised here in the chapel about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, before I came, before I was invited to come as pastor. We were worshipping here. And uh, I, just, I really felt the Lord calling me to be baptised by full immersion as an adult. So even if you've been baptised as a baby, don't, don't worry about it. Well, if, you, if you're Anglican, you should worry about that, but you're not, so you don't worry about that. So um, <laughs> if, you would, if you'd like to be baptised, you know, if you've been baptised, actually, I'd like to be baptised as an adult, you know, Easter Sunday. I was reading, um, so I will get on to what I'm saying, but I was reading a friend, a posted thing on Facebook. There was a, a very famous preacher in the early, early church, a guy called John Chrysostom, who had the nickname Golden Gob or Golden Mouth. Because his preaching was just so passionate and effective. But when he did baptisms, he baptised all the candidates naked. To remind them of the Garden of Eden and a time before the fall. So I did read that and I thought, should we do that? And then, and then I mentioned it to Dee and we thought not. So... Um, so but I just thought that was quite nice, wasn't it? Just the reminder of, you know, to think about a time before everything went wrong, you know, before the fall. Anyway, I digress. Uh, Luke, chapter, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, uh, it may have the title, it will probably have the title in your Bible, The Parable of the Pharisee and the Tax Collector. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Father, thank you for your 
words this morning, may they speak to our hearts and our minds and change our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. So, um, these two characters go up to the temple to pray, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus begins the, the story, the introduction is to some who were confident of their own righteousness. To some who were confident of their own righteousness. Now, I'd suggest that probably most people are confident of their own righteousness. Uh, most people outside of the church are confident of their own righteousness. Because if you were to say to somebody outside of the church, well, you're not going to go to heaven. Uh, most people would be offended. Most people would take offence. If you were to say to somebody outside of the church, well, you know, you're not going to go to heaven. They would go, well, why not? Why not? I live a good life. Surely God will be, please, my life is good enough. God will have me. So, and even in the church, lots of us are, are confident in our, in our own righteousness. We, we think our lives are good enough. Uh, we think we are Im- impressing God with the lives that we, we live. We think, you know, we'll be okay because I'm, intrinsically, I'm a good person. I know I'm not perfect, but intrinsically, I'm a pretty good person. So we have, we have confidence in our own righteousness. The, the immediate problem with being confident in your own righteousness is, as uh, Luke points out, those who are confident in their own looked down on everyone else. They look down on everyone else. The problem with being confident in your own righteousness is it leads you to be judgmental. You look down on other people. And hand on heart, we all do that. Hand on heart, every one of us in this room, I guarantee, whether we know Jesus or not, we look down on other people. We do it consciously or or subconsciously. We, we judge people, we see people around us, we see people on the news, and there's something in us that looks down. We judge, we make a judgment against other people. And it's a sign that we are, you know, we're puffed up and we're, we're confident in our own righteousness. To be confident of your own righteousness is, it's, it's, it's kind of disastrous because it leads to all kinds of division and it leads to all kinds of judgmentalism and looking down on other people. And Jesus says, He tells this parable because he's aware that that's what we do. That's the trap that we fall into. And there's a great great danger in falling into this trap. And so he tells the story about two men who go up to the temple to pray. The first one is a Pharisee. So the Pharisees were, they're zealous for the law. They want to be obedient to the law because they're very religious. And the way religion works is you get a reward for doing something. So every religious system, one way or another, works in that way, that you do something, and if you do it well enough, long enough, hard enough, in the end, God will, or God may, give you a reward. And that's the way all religions work, whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, whatever kind of ism it is, all religions work in that way. You do something, you do it long enough, hard enough, you will get a reward. Uh, Christianity, in those terms, is not a religion because that's not how Christianity works, as we will see. But every religious system in the world works in that way. You obey the rules, you believe the right things, you do it long enough and hard enough, you will get your reward, maybe, uh, eventually. Uh, It may take uh, 
if you believe in reincarnation, it may take an endless succession of reincarnations, which will go on for forever. Or it may be that you, if you're uh, 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 in Islam, you, you do it all, and you, but there's never any certainty that you'll get the reward that you hope for. There's no, there's no assurance. There's no guarantee. There's, uh, Allah, hasn't, Allah hasn't revealed that. Allah hasn't revealed himself. There's no guarantee that in the end, even if you obey all of the rules and do everything that is expected of you, there's no guarantee that in the end Allah will be merciful. Because it's impossible to know anything at all about Allah. That's the way religion works. And the Pharisee comes as a religious person. And, well, he's, he's very pleased with himself, isn't he? What do we read? The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Uh, one of the translations, he prayed to himself. He's not even talking to God. He's just, he's just bigging himself up. He's like gaslighting himself with God as his audience. But there's, there's, this, there's a sense of his kind of... His kind of arrogance and his entitlement that he goes into the temple, the place of God's presence, and he's like, hey, God, it's me. Pleased to see me. It's like this thing. Of, you know, he's, he's stood up. And there are, there are two things I think that that speaks of in his attitude and, and two things that, that, that challenge us and certainly challenge me. Uh, one is this sense of entitlement. He's like, I deserve to be here. I deserve to be in God's presence because, because I'm good enough for it. I deserve to be it. The other thing that it speaks of is he, he doesn't seem to have any fear of God. He doesn't seem to have any fear of God. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. He has no fear of God. Well, if, you, if you've read the Bible, one of the things that you will, you will see from cover to cover is that, is that we should have a fear of God. We should have a fear of God. And it's not in the sense of being terrified of God. Although there is certainly that aspect to it. Because God is a, is a holy God. He is perfect. He is transcendent. He is pure. Uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews was a book written to um, Jewish Christians who were suffering severe persecution. And it was written to Jewish Christians to just reassure them that in choosing Jesus they had made the right choice even though that was proving so costly for them and to the writer of the Hebrews he writes to encourage them to encourage them to persevere and in chapter 10 verse 31 he's kind of just really encouraging them to keep on keeping on and he says this in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 he says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why is it a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God? Because God is perfect. He is holy and we're not. Remember back in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus and uh, Moses leading the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. And there comes a point where Moses is talking to God and he says to God, he says, he says I want to see your glory. God, I want to see your glory. And the Lord replies, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me 
where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. When you read the Old Testament, the thing that even that the people of God were terrified of in the Old Testament was of seeing God face to face. Because they thought if we see God face to face, we will not be able to live. Because God is so holy and so perfect. And God is the same yesterday, today and forever. God hasn't changed. To fall into the hands of the living God is a, it is a dreadful thing. There's good news, which we'll get onto in a moment. But is it a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God if you are not covered? If you are not protected? And this Pharisee, well, he, he kind of wanders into God's presence with this sense of entitlement and without, with this, doesn't seem to have this fear of who God is. And it's one of the things that I've, I feel we've, so much of the church has lost. We've lost in our day. We've lost this sense of having, in the right way, a fear of who God is. We've become overly familiar with the presence of God and overly familiar with his, just his awesome power. And if the church has no fear of God, then how can we expect our culture or our society to have any sense of a fear of God? We, we live in a, in, a, in a culture now where the church is, is mocked mostly as an irrelevance. The church is sidelined as an irrelevance because so much of the church has become so just so insipid. As Joel was saying last Sunday, if you were here last Sunday, Joel had these two glasses of squash, like a, a weak one and a, and a strong one. So much of the church has just become weak because we've lost our, our fear of God and our sense of God's presence. And a Pharisee, when he shows up in God's presence and he just boasts about himself, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. We do that, don't we? I do that. It's been my whole life judging people, looking at people and thinking, well, I must be okay because I'm not as bad as you are. And we do, do, we do that the whole time, don't we? We, we, kind of, we know that we're not perfect. We know that we don't get everything right. But we, we think, we look at other people who are worse than we are and we think, well, I'm all right because I'm not as bad as you are. And even as Christians, we, we, just, we do it the whole time. It's almost built into us because... It's one of the ways in which we build our identity when we don't know Christ. And even when we do know Christ, we still continue to live with the shadow of that and we still do it. But when we don't know Christ and we're trying to work out who we are and we're trying to work out our identity and our security, the way that we do it is by comparison. And so we know there are people who are better than we are and we feel bad, but then we comfort ourselves by looking at all the people who are much worse than we are. That's what we do because we need to build our identity and our security. And the Pharisee says, well, I'm so thankful, God, that I'm not like all these other people. And I'm a good person. I fast twice a week. The requirement was to fast once a week. I give a tenth of all I get. There are only certain things you had to give a tenth of. The Pharisee says, I tithe everything. God, I'm amazing. You should be so pleased I'm here. And that's the trap that we fall into. And we do it. And, and even when we read this story, some of us are thinking, oh, I'm so pleased I'm not like the Pharisee. <laughs> <laughs> We're exactly like the Pharisee. It's, in our, it's, it's such a trap. And Jesus says, there's a contrast. 
And he talks about the tax collector. The tax collector, and, and just in the context, tax collectors were despised by Pharisees. Tax collectors were kind of almost the lowest of the low. I know, you know, we're not particularly keen on tax collectors. But 2,000 years ago, tax collectors are, they're kind of, they're the lowest of the low. They're the kind of people that are as far from the kingdom of God as it's possible to get. Because they don't obey the law, they collaborate with the Gentile Romans, they're defrauding their own people, they're lining their own pockets by taking too much, you know, they are... They're the kind of, they're the the lowest of the low, which is why Jesus picks these two characters for the story. The tax collector stands at a distance. He won't even look up to heaven. He won't even, he beats his breast and says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Actually, he doesn't say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. The original language says, God have mercy on me, the sinner. God have mercy on me, the sinner. Whereas the Pharisee, he's kind of thrown his net wide and he's looked at loads of people and he said, compared to all these other people, I'm brilliant. The tax collector, he's, all he's aware of is himself and his own falling short of who God is. He says, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. That's his focus. And he's made the right, you see, the the Pharisee makes a false comparison. The Pharisee compares himself with other people and thinks he's doing okay. And it's it's a false comparison and it's a hopeless comparison because it doesn't matter how I compare with you or you compare with me. The tax collector makes the right comparison because he says, "Well, well, how do I compare with God? How do I compare with the holiness of God? And when he makes that comparison, he he realises, well, I I fall short. And when any of us do that, we realise actually, well, we fall short. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Um, Joel um, began our our service this morning with this question of, well, well, who do we rely on? Who do we depend on? Well, the tax collector comes before God and he realises, actually, I... The only hope I have is throwing myself on the mercy of God. That's the only hope I have. God, have mercy. The, 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 the Pharisee comes with his hands full of his achievements and all the things that he's done and all the things that he boasts about. The tax collector comes with his hands empty. He realises, I've got nothing. I've got nothing to give. I've got nothing to, to offer. I've got nothing to bring before God to impress him or to boast about. He says, I've... I'm entirely at the mercy of God. I come with empty hands. And for us this morning, as we think about being in the presence of God and coming into relationship with God, are we, are we coming with, with our hands full of the things that we think God will be impressed by? Are we coming thinking, well, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not bad. There are a lot of good things that I do and a lot of people that I've helped and a lot of prayers that I've said, and a lot of Bible readings that I've done. And do we come with our hands full and we say, well, God's? Are you impressed with these things that I've done? Or do we realise the folly of that and we come as the tax collector and in a sense we, we, won't even, we won't even look up. But we grieve for our sin and our wrongdoing and we just say, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And uh, 
important to remember another parable that Jesus has told just a couple of chapters before of the, the father and his, and his two sons. Remember the younger son who's, who's abandoned his father, squandered all the wealth that his father gave him and ends up in a pigsty. And, and, and the, the younger son, eventually he kind of crawls back home on his hands and knees, smelling of pig mess and, and, and asks for forgiveness. Says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me, as, make me like one of your hired men, your slaves. And remember the, the welcome that the father gives to him. When the father saw him a long way off, he saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. That's the welcome that the tax collector gets. When the tax collector comes and says, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. The father says, bring the best robe. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. When we come to God with our, with our hands empty, realising we've got nothing to bring, that we need his mercy, we need his forgiveness. God says to us, throws his arms around us, runs to us with compassion and says, let's have a feast and celebrate. You've come home. I love what... Um, um, Joel said a few minutes ago of, you know, singing that song, My Jesus, and God replies by saying, my, my Nick, my Caleb, my G. He welcomes us with his love. And in all of this, as I'm reflecting on this this week, the thing that has so, has so challenged me and, and in a way so kind of broken my heart is my own, my own self-sufficiency and my own kind of arrogance and my my own my own thinking that I can impress God with the things that I do and my own doing so many of the things that I do just in my own strength and um I had this we were away this um this week at this uh, leadership conference and um it's it's such a good thing to do sometimes just kind of step back a bit and just have an opportunity to Reflect on what you're doing and allow the God to, God to sort of speak into your life. And, um, and the Lord really challenged me this, this week. And I had a, he gave me a picture. Sometimes the Lord speaks through, through pictures. He sort of gives us pictures in our mind's eye. And on Tuesday afternoon in the opening sort of worship, and, and uh, we were just praying about what the Lord wanted to speak to us about over the course of the conference. And, um, and I just had this, the Lord gave me a couple of pictures. And, and what, I don't know if you've seen this um, there's a show on BBC at the moment called Sort Your Life Out, which, um, which Esther watches a lot. And, uh, and I was there once and watched it with her. So I'm not. But, um, but if you've not seen the programme Sort Your Life Out, they basically take a family whose home is just, it's just rammed full of clutter. It's just packed full of. Like there was one, there was one, I think the, the one that I accidentally saw with, with Esther. But they got like 2,000 toys. It was like a family that had three children, had like 2,000 toys. I mean, they literally hardly move in that. But anyway, what they do is they basically take the contents of the house and unpack it into a warehouse. And basically this warehouse is literally full. And then, and then they sort of take the family through and they kind of have a sort out and get rid of a whole load of stuff. And uh, the Lord just reminded me of that. And, uh, and he just, I've just felt the Lord speaking to me and saying... You're, you know, you've got a lot of clutter. You've got a lot of clutter going in, on in your life. You've got a lot of plates that are spinning. And maybe you shouldn't be spinning quite so many plates as you 
as you are. And then they showed me another picture, and it was a picture of a, a ship being hauled into dry dock for a refit. And you know, sometimes you know, ships, they're, they're hauled in, and, and below the waterline, because you don't see below the waterline, you, you kind of don't see the crud that's going on down there. They just kind of keep the bit above the waterline you know, you know, clean and presentable. But when it's pulled out into dry dock, you see all the, you know, all the crud and all the barnacles. And, uh, and I just, again, I just felt the Lord saying to me that um, he wanted to kind of pull me into, into dry dock and, uh, and just, um, yeah, just spend some time refreshing me and, and, and cleaning me. And, uh, and one of the things that he really spoke to me about, and one of the, the kind of the big barnacles that I felt the Lord needs to remove from my hull, is the sense I do, I do so much just in my own strength. I do so much, you know, a lot of what I do, I could do whether I prayed or not. I could just do it. So much of my activity I could just do if I never prayed and I never talked to God about it. It's just stuff that I do. And I'm kind of, I'm a bit wired like that because of my upbringing, my childhood. I'm, I'm just wired to do stuff in my own strength and to be a Mr. Fix-It. And I just, I felt so convicted this week that actually I need to stop, stop doing that and become more dependent on who he is and more dependent on you know I, I talk all the time and teach all the time about being being led by the spirit of God and you know so much of the time I'm too afraid to be led by the spirit of God and one of the other things that the, the Lord convicted me about this week was my I think so much about what other people think and less about what God thinks. And so much of what I do is dictated to by how I think other people are going to react rather than I think how God is going to react. And so many of the things that I do are restricted because of that fear. And I just, again, I just felt the Lord say, you know, you need to do something about this. You need to just learn to rest in who uh, in who God is, rest in who he is. And I just, as I was re- reading this passage this week and just thinking about the, the tax collector who just shows up before God with completely empty hands and he just says, God, have, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And that's really challenged me this week that I need to, I need to spend more time coming before God with empty hands rather than hands that are full of busyness and full of things that I'm doing and full of this and full of that and just say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And um, I'd encourage all of us in this season of, of Lent, you know, to, you know, it's a season of self-examination to look at ourselves and to think, well, do I stand before God with hands that are full? Or do I stand before God with hands that are, are empty? And, uh, and just finally, um, one of the speakers this week was referencing a passage that we, we looked at a couple of years ago when we preached through the book of, of Revelation. But it's just a passage, it's, a, it's Jesus speaking to a church. It's the resurrected Jesus speaking to a church in a place called Laodicea. You can read it in Revelation chapter 3 verse 14. But Jesus is speaking to a church that they feel that they're doing very, very well. They feel that there's nothing that they need. They feel that they're rich. But Jesus speaks to them and he says, he says, I look at you and I look at what you're doing and I want to vomit. 
It's literally what Jesus says. He looks at this church and he says, you know, on the outside, by all appearances, you look very successful. But actually, you make me sick. Actually, you're, you're, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. You haven't got anything. And then it's the context in which this very famous verse comes, which you may have heard, uh, where Jesus says, um, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. And uh, evangelists like me, we use that all the time to give an invitation for people to become Christians. Uh, We use it all the time to say, the Lord is knocking at the door of your heart. Will you open the door and let him in? And it's a classic case of ripping a verse out of context (laughs) <laughs> not use it, but it works, so I'm going to still keep using it. But in a context, Jesus is not knocking at the door of someone who isn't a Christian. He's knocking at the door of the church and says, can I come in? How awful is that? This is a church that looks really good. This is a church that looks like it's doing lots of good things. Lots of good work. They're meeting together. You know, they're praying. They're worshipping. They're talking to their friends. And Jesus says, can I come in, please? What what an indictment and what a challenge that it's quite possible to exist as a church and shut Jesus out. And again, I felt so challenged this this week that I I don't intentionally seek to shut Jesus out, but unintentionally... I I do it all the time because I'm just doing stuff in my own strength. And I don't spend enough time waiting on him and listening and and praying. And so my challenge for myself this in this season and having been at this just having these few days away is to be more like the tax collector and less like the Pharisee. And to come before God, to come into his presence, knowing that because of The good news of Jesus, because Jesus died on the cross for my sins so I can be forgiven, so that I can come freely into the presence of God. That's the wonderful thing. The writer to Hebrews, he says that. He says, because of what Jesus has done, we can come boldly into God's presence. But I want to come boldly and not arrogantly. I want to come boldly knowing that it's only because of Jesus that I can do so. I want to come boldly knowing that I still depend on his mercy and on his grace. And uh, I hope that for all of us in this, this season, it can be a season of repentance, of coming back to God with empty hands rather than full hands. So let's, let's just take a few moments uh, to do that right now.